pray. All right. Father, we love you. Uh, just grateful um, for my brothers and sisters and just this long, very long journey through Romans. Um, Lord, we have been changed and shaped and pushed and prodded by your good word. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you give us the memories um, in our minds and our hearts to retain the things you want us to from Romans and to um, begin to live it out as we look at these chapters that in view of, of your mercy, God, we want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So help us to be men and women who uh, don't just have head knowledge, but it truly moves down into our hearts and out into our, our daily lives and how we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and begin to love others more than ourselves. So we ask for your help. Um, and we thank you um, that you help us, uh, that we lack nothing, no good thing in Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So uh, would somebody pick up, read Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, and we'll walk through those verses first. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All right. Thank you, Connie. So last week we had quite the discussion, which, which was expected, right, of what it means to submit, to, to subject to government, to, to see um, the authorities in our lives as, as God-given, god uh, ordained and what does that mean um, when it's hard to respect some of the leaders that are in our lives? How do we live that out? Um, how do we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and to Christ what is Christ's? And, and what's that mean discernment wise, wisdom wise? And then in verses um, kind of eight through 10, we, we looked at how uh, love fulfills the law and how we love God and love others. Oh, here comes Anne. There we go. <clears throat> um and she's almost connected there she is good morning ann good morning dave good morning everyone good to see hey, we're just doing a quick recap of romans 13 and then we'll walk into um walk through 11 through 14 verses 11 through 14 so we just we talked about how um Christ is the fulfillment of the law for us on our behalf. So it's not a matter of us trying to grit up um, our ability to love God and love others in order to fulfill the law. Instead, um, it's living out what Christ has already fulfilled for us um, in how we love God and love others. And now he's moving into, you'll see kind of an 11 through 14, kind of this wartime mentality, which we've talked a, a lot about in 1 Peter this idea of being alert, sober-minded, um, you know, having your your loins girded up with truth, right? Being on the ready. And so, one of the questions I, I want to ask, maybe about verse eleven, and then I'll reread it here. 
is what does it mean for a Christian to be asleep? And then a uh, follow-up question to that then would be, what does it mean for a Christian to be awake? So let me read verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So two questions. Biblically speaking, because Jesus used this language a lot too, um, biblically speaking, what does it mean for somebody to be asleep? And then biblically speaking, what does it mean for a Christian to be awake? What's that look like? Thoughts on that? What's it mean to be asleep? I, 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 I take it as being um, almost like an um, unconscious type thing where you are not in control of your emotions and things of that sort that you have no um, ability to make decisions and things of that sort and that um, where it talks about when we're um, I guess maybe in some ways we're dead in Christ we have don't have him um, yeah yes Christ would be with us but not we're not functional similar maybe to we looked at Ephesians 5 a while back right of um, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery but instead be filled with the spirit right so it sounds like Ron you're where the angle you're taking is it's it's to be have your mind controlled um and influenced um rather, your faculties yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay all right any other thoughts what, what's it mean to be asleep in this well, for world? me asleep would be inactive and then when you're awake you're active Mm -hmm. When you're asleep, you're you're not doing anything that would um, that would be you know good for you and anything that would uh, glorify God. But when you're active, you're actively doing doing um, what Jesus um, wants us to do is to be you know, spreading the gospel, um, helping other people, uh, being righteous in God's eyes. And you'd say kind of inactive versus active. Yes. Yeah. Last thing I'd like to add is that when you're asleep, you're really defenseless. Mm -hmm. Good observation. Any other thoughts on that? Reminds me a lot of, uh, think of the parables Jesus teaches and how many of them he'll kind of end with this phrase, uh, stay awake right? Stay awake. Uh, even think of that scene in the garden, the right before his arrest, right? It's obviously physical as well as spiritual. When he asked, asked his disciples to stay awake and pray with him and three times he comes back and they're, they're just dead asleep, right? And then he, he has that line, um, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak, right? Um, all right. So maybe let's, let's reverse that, um, other side of that question. Biblically, what's it mean? Um, I love the back scratcher, <laughs> mid, mid Romans 13. Um, what's it mean biblically to be awake? Um, and then what's that look like for us on a daily basis to be awake? <clears throat> Our eyes are open. We're able to see. refreshed
maybe a level deeper on that question. Um, how can you and I be aware whether or not we are awake or asleep in this Christian walk? Can you rephrase that, Dave? I don't, I don't think I understand what you mean. Okay. How, how can you or I be aware whether or not we're awake or asleep in our walk with Jesus? You mean what evidences would we see if we were awake or asleep? I think, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, really a way, that's a good way of restating it. I think it's a better way of asking it. Yeah. I think a lot of it might be that you are about your father's business um, and that um, you're uh, strongly uh, in in touch with the father hmm. on a daily base. Um, so many times, you know, so many times that, you know, I'm in my Christian life, I get captured by the uh, busyness of the day, you know, the world, things that need to be done. And I'm not, I'm really not attuned to the Lord. Um, and I would like to reverse that. Uh, but um, so it's, it's that continual thinking, praying, rejoicing in the Lord. Um, so mm -hmm. this is a really interesting passage. You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. there's so many, uh, so, a lot of depth to this idea of being asleep versus being awake that yeah. that uh, are hard to you know maybe um, uh, identify. Uh, I think we know what it means in our heart, but to, you know, communicate it, you know, sometimes you just feel like you're dead in your spirit, you know, you can't, mm. you can't hear God. Yeah. Um, and then, but that's different from being asleep. Mm. Asleep, you're not, you're, you're, you're not, um, you're in a semi-coma to the things of the Lord, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To build on what John is saying, um, yeah, the unconsciousness um, of the sleep to me, the, the, differenti the differential would be um, a sleep would be somebody who is not, uh, uh, who, is, who is focused on things, uh, perhaps temporal things that really don't matter versus the person who's awake who focuses, as John says, on the things of the Lord or being about being about uh, God's business? It reminds me of the word hevel, hevel, right? Mm -hmm. That that um, you know, hevel, hevel is the it's it's really a vapor or a, a smoke, and the the idea is that um, there appears to be something there, but when you go to grab for it, it's truly there's nothing. It's just a a quick. Uh, um, uh, mirage mm -hmm. if you will and, and and a sleep would be for, from my perspective the folks who are chasing after that mirage versus or the hevel versus the person who as john said is chasing after the things of god yeah that's good i think to look maybe tie off of your jump off of your guys thoughts maybe to look back and then to look forward to look back at Romans 12, where um, we spent some time looking at, at Paul's challenge to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. 
to be asleep or to use Anne's language inactive seems to be just allow yourself to kind of be pushed into the world's mold without actively considering the impact of that or being aware of how you're being pushed in the world's mold um, rather than actively um, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then I, I think, John, you mentioned this, but maybe to move forward here in verse 12, he, he seems to want us to be thinking about the armor of Christ. And one of the things, I'll just read verse 12. The night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Um, one of the things that Paul will stress in Ephesians when he lays out the armor of God for about 10 verses in chapter six, um, towards the end, he mentions a couple times praying at all times in the spirit. So there seems to be some connection between putting on the armor of God, being ready like a soldier, praying at all times in the spirit. There seems to be this um, awake, ready, alert um, with putting on the armor of Christ and, and praying in the spirit. Or as he says in, in Thessalonians, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I want to spend more time exploring that. I, I want to kind of dig into what that looks like on a daily basis, but it, it seems to be this connection for Jesus, looking back at the garden and get at Gethsemane and for Paul here with the armor of God between being ready, alert, and continually in prayer um, is, a, is a wakefulness throughout the day, um, whereas a lack of prayerfulness is a drowsiness. Um, a spiritual drowsiness that comes over us when we're maybe only thinking of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm about to eat a meal, I should pray. Um, there's, there's a difference there between a, a readiness and alertness of praying throughout the day. Ron Peacock. And I, mean, I was just reading through and it also puts in mind that when we're, when we're asleep that we are um, unable to be observant. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, mm. seeking someone to devour. Yeah. When we're asleep, we are completely vulnerable to attacks. We are uh, to our enemy as well. Uh, and so that's why we we're unable to be um, observant and to, to be watchful and uh, of um, who wants to devour us yeah yeah that's good like maybe a sleepiness isolates us from the flock and so rather than hearing the shepherd's voice through through prayer and being awake and staying close to him abiding with him we wander and we're, we're picked off from the flock uh, another thought too that i once again i want to put more thought into this that it reminds me of thinking of jesus's parables a lot of times his idea of, of being awake seems to be tied to his return. And so this idea of to be awake is, is to long for the return of the king, uh, for the, um, the new heavens and the new earth, for the day of judgment, like for us to eagerly long and expect that and not fall asleep and think that we're going to live forever or this world's going to live forever. But to be alert seems to be come Lord Jesus, come um, that mindset, that heart, all, all that kind of seems tied up in this alertness, uh, awakeness. 
Um, along with verse 12 that we'll circle back to at the end of this chapter here in a couple of verses, I just want to ask the question, um, what does it mean and look like for us on a daily basis to put on the armor of Christ, to put off the old, to put on the new? I've shared this with, with you guys, but just recently through somebody else's teaching, um, it was highlighted to me that the book of Isaiah shows us the armor of God before we even see it here in Romans or in Ephesians. It, it talks about the Messiah to come, will come with the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, swinging the sword uh, of truth. And it's all right there in Isaiah. It was just one of those moments for me of like, what? This has always been here. And it, it's really just talking about um, how the Messiah is our armor. And so to put on the armor of God is to put on Christ. That is synonymous for Paul as he looks at, at how Isaiah lays out the Messiah will come um, bearing the armor of God. He is our helmet of salvation. He is our breastplate of righteousness. Uh, he is our belt of truth. And so the question I'll have when we get to 14 is, is how do we put off, is he's going to challenge us to do our old and put on Christ? Um, that'll be a kind of a good recap of a lot of stuff we've talked in Romans. So be ready for that question. Verse 13, then let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I want to take a minute. We don't talk enough about this, but you'll see this a lot in the Bible's wisdom literature, um, this idea of eyes, hands, and feet. It actually starts all the way, and, and Sean could probably riff on this for a while. Imagine this starts all the way back in Genesis 3, uh, standing in front of the, the tree, um, Adam and Eve and the serpent. But wisdom literature really focuses a lot on the eyes, the hands, and the feet. The eyes, the hands, and the feet. And one of the reasons is they, they use the eyes as the metaphor for how you and I see the world. Um, do we see the world from our perspective? Do we see the things we desire and go after them? Do we see the things and we decide we want to define good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is good and not good? Or do we have eyes to see from God's perspective and we want him to define what is right and wrong, uh, good and not good. Uh, so you'll see this a lot in Psalms and Proverbs, um, the eyes of the righteous or the eyes of the wicked. Um, the hands, the hands is, is action of, of how we treat others. Will we treat others with justice and righteousness and equity? How will we treat others? And then feet, uh, kind of the third progression is the path we take. Uh, will you see this a lot in Proverbs? Will you take the path of the righteous or the path of the wicked? And a lot of that depends on how you see things with your eyes and how uh, you live out and treat others. Is um, then that path that you choose of the righteous or the wicked will shape you. So think of Psalm 1, right? Describing the ideal man or woman of God. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked stand in the way of sitters, sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord and on him he meditates day and night. And you would see this progression over and over of seeing, doing, and then the path you take ultimately is what will shape you 
um, and being either uh, a righteous man or woman in God's eyes or a wicked man or woman in God's eyes. So that's a whole theme, all from Genesis to where we are here in Romans of, of eyes, hands, and, and feet. But uh, Sean, anything you would want to add on, on that and maybe how that connects to the tree and the garden? Or um, if not, we can roll to the next verse. But if you had a thought on that. No, I think, I think, uh, I think what you said was really good. Um, um, and so now look at 14, uh, instead of walking. So instead of the, the path of the wicked, choosing to define good and evil the way we want to and go after our own heart's desires and choose the path of, of the world. Instead of that, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Um, so let me ask that question, maybe in line of that. So put off verse 13 type of living, put on verse 14, put on Christ. What does that look like? Um, we've had several conversations about this. I think it's good to just keep coming back to it. What's that look like for us on a daily basis here um, it, to, to put off the old and put on the new? And thought to just verse 12, maybe circling that back to the armor of Christ, the armor of God. What's it mean to put on Christ um, on a daily basis as our belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation? One of the things we, I think, all of us on a daily basis need to realize is that we're in a battle. And mm -hmm. so if you're, if you're, if you don't see what's going on in our lives personally and uh, in our families and, and don't realize that there's, there's battles going on for the truth against sin, uh, for minds and hearts, you're, we're not um, cognizant, we're asleep. We don't mm -hmm. put on, on the armor. Um, and so I think that's the first thing is to, to realize that we're we're in a battle day by day, moment by moment, for the truth, and um, uh, there are a lot of sleepers out there, mm -hmm. and those there's a lot who are awake to evil, mm -hmm. and they are they are pushing forward their agendas, mm -hmm. and um, we're we're asleep to those things. So therefore, we, we don't put on our armor, but it's, it is a war. Um, mm -hmm. And to make no provision for the, the flesh um, means, that, you know, you, you think about it, you, we, we're angry, say we get into a position where we're a position where we're or a situation where we're angry, we like to harbor that and that, that anger against somebody, you know, kind of feed it a little bit. That's a making a provision for the flesh, mm. you know, um, to, to desire um, something more than we, we desire Christ would be, 
you know, to give more mind uh, thinking time to it, mm-hmm. uh, to elevate it, you know. And so that is a provision for the flesh mm-hmm. to be occupied by the things of the world. And um, so just a couple thoughts there. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes it takes me back to what you so eloquently described uh, when you use the word reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me immediately of reckon yourselves dead, but alive to Christ. Right? That it's that mind understanding, um, even though or not understanding, but believing, even though we don't necessarily understand it, that we our flesh is to be considered dead. We are buried with Him in baptism, but yet alive to Christ. Mm-hmm. That's good. It reminds me too of <clears throat> Connie's go-to passage in, in Colossians 3, right? Of setting our minds on the things of Christ, our hearts on the things that are above. And when we begin to see our lives from God's perspective and we're co-heirs with Christ and Sean, exactly what you just said, dead to our sin, but alive in Christ. The next verse he has in verse five of Colossians three is, is therefore put to death um, everything that belongs to your earthly nature. So there's, there's this connection between knowing who you are in Christ and then, you know, coming back to Romans 13, 14, to make no provision for the flesh, because you know, that's, that's not me anymore. Um, I'm alive in Christ. And so it's, it seems to be that constant alertness, uh, as John said, I'm in a battle, um, and the constant alertness of never forgetting my identity in Christ. Uh, we've talked about this, I think way back in Romans six and seven, we sin when we forget who we are, uh, to sin is, is to go back, um, to the old, uh, enslaved Dave Hawes, who was enslaved to sin, in the spiritual powers, uh, but that's not me anymore. I don't have to go back, but I sin when I forget who I am new in Christ. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on, on that? What that is, um, on a daily basis for some of us, uh, before we roll into chapter 14. I think for me, it reminds me of not giving any foothold or a stronghold to, to sin. Uh, I know for me, being a recovering alcoholic, I don't go into a bar. I don't go into slippery places because mm-hmm. it's so easy to slip back into that or getting involved in conversation. It's amazing how fast a conversation can slip. And before you know it, man, you're just so deep into it, you can't turn around and get back out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important where it talks about there to, you know, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it was nothing greater than having a drink and getting drunk but that's mm-hmm. given to your full earthly flesh desires and not what's of christ mm-hmm. it reminds me there's been a, a lyric from a song that's rattled around in my head for a few years now um a, ba- a band called 10th avenue north and they have this line let joy take temptation's place mm. and they the song talks about so enjoying the presence of god um, that, uh, other thing it's similar to our, you know, go-to song of turn your eyes upon Jesus, right. That, that when you enjoy Jesus and he becomes your treasure more and more and more, the things of this earth, they grow strangely dim. They, they lose their hold, their pull on you. Um, 
And so I love that line, let joy take temptation's place. Um, that's not always going to be the case. It's not easy, but, but the more we pursue the fountain of life, as it said in Jeremiah 2.13, the less interested we are in digging our own muddy cisterns, right? Um, because why, why would we want anything else but the fountain of life? Um, and that seems to be the putting on and putting off is, is to recognize Christ is enough. Uh, he is so good. He is my joy. Uh, temptation begins to lose its hold. Uh, that's the daily battle, <laughs> you know, to truly believe that and, and move towards him in that, in that belief. Let's, uh, let's roll towards chapter 14. Um, and uh, let's read the whole chapter. I'll give a little bit of context and then we'll work through paragraph through paragraph on that. So would somebody be willing to read um, Romans 14, take a paragraph or so, and then share it if you'd like. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of God. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end is Christ. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, so then each of us will give account of himself to God. So I'm going to grab uh, maybe 13 for the rest of the chapter. There, there, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat you are no longer walking in love but uh, by what you eat do not destroy one for whom christ died so do not let what you you regard as good to be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of god is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and glory in the holy spirit whoever thus uh, serves christ is acceptable to god and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace 
and for mutual uh, upbuilding. Do not, uh, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God, for everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But what? Uh, but whoever it doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not uh, proceed from faith is sin. Amen. Well, if uh, if we were to say in chapter 13, Paul focuses on, okay, now as a Christian, what is our relationship to government? Um, and what is our relationship to the world? How do we still live in this world, but not be of it? Now in 14, he's going to hone in on that a little bit and say, now what's our relationship to one another uh, which he did in, in chapter 12 as well, but he, he tackles a very specific issue that's causing a lot of conflict and division within these local bodies, these communities, Jesus followers gathering in homes. Um, and once again, let me remind you, we, we focused on this a lot. The first couple chapters are Romans, but you've got Jew and Gentile together now under um, the Messiah, Jesus, following him, but trying to figure out with very different upbringings, backgrounds, traditions, understandings of the law, um, very, very different. And now together in the home, reading scripture, singing, celebrating communion, sharing meals. And now uh, Paul's going to say, hey, here here's, seems to be the tension, the con some of the tension and the conflict between Jew and Gentile um, in these homes as you're trying to worship Jesus together as brother and sister. And so now he's, he's focusing in chapter 14 to a very specific conflict. And, you know, we, if we know a little bit of the context, you know, living in kind of the Roman um, empire at that time, most all the meat that you would get access to in the marketplace had already been sacrificed in the local temples um, as a sacrifice. And then they would take the, the leftover meat and then sell it in the marketplace for the day. And so some Christians are saying, whoa, 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 um, how could we ever touch that meat or eat that meat? That was sacrificed to Zeus this morning. Um, I don't, I'm not going to eat that. Like that's pagan worship. I, I can't eat this meat. And others are saying, what's the big deal? Uh, God is God and Zeus is not. I'm going to eat the meat, <laughs> you know? And this is the, the tension they're feeling. And so some Christians feel this complete freedom of, Hey, it's just me. And um, God wants us to enjoy this. And I'm not worried about um, who Zeus is because I know who Jesus is. And others are saying, this seems to be mingling um, false worship with, with us sharing a meal together and then going into communion. I, I don't, I don't feel right about this. So what do we do? Um, so that's a little bit. Of, I don't know if you guys have any other context or anything you'd want to throw in there. Um, let me read the first couple of verses and let me ask you this. Um, who does Paul describe as the weak believer and who does he describe as the strong believer? And I, I think that's really the key to this whole chapter. So let me read the first four verses again. 
and uh, maybe we'll lay out what the weak person is struggling with and what the strong person is struggling with. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So this is a clear, this is a good distinction for us to make. Somebody maybe describe for me who the weak person is and, and who the strong person is in Paul's eyes here. Well, Connie eats a lot of vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> so vegans are weak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man can I just maybe add something to this then mm -hmm. um because i think paul's gonna that. open it up to beyond meat yeah um in the next part i i think he's really addressing two groups the strong are the ones in their faith that are convinced that they're free from the bondage of the law in christ and the weak are the ones who are still hanging on to the traditions um that are really identified with Judaism and the law. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. 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 I don't think it's just a meat thing because mm -hmm. in, in short order here, he's going to start talking about um, um, days, et cetera, uh, what days are esteemed by whom. And, and, and that's a, that's a, I see that as a connection to, to yeah. Jewish tradition. Yeah, no. Well, and as well, the meat as well. Yeah, no, I agree, Sean. That's good. Uh, that's, yeah, that's good coloring in there. I, I agree. It, that seems to be overall, maybe underneath it all, is those still holding on to the law. Um, and those, I like how you said that, fully convinced, um, right, that, that the law has been fulfilled. So that's good. That's good as we move forward. Why, why one of the reasons I want to highlight that too, and I, I like how Sean did that, is why do you think it Paul very clearly gives some labels here um, in an already dangerously tense situation it seems like this could provoke more controversy to call one strong and the one weak um, why would Paul do that what's he doing here Um, I'll, I'll poke a little fun at myself here and, and maybe my mindset, um, in my early days as a Christian, but I think what Paul's doing here is he's, he's reversing labels and titles and turning it upside down. Like Jesus often does because the person he describes as weak here sees themselves as strong. So just sharing for my own life, I grew up very much so a rule follower, do everything by the book, um, really disciplined, really, really religious, and uh, looked down on anybody who wasn't as disciplined or careful as I was. And so 
Um, I look back and I mean, I've shared my kind of parts of my God story um, several times, but it wasn't until a man in my life, uh, Dave Oswald, kind of walked through the gospel with me my senior year of college and began to just lovingly point me out as a Pharisee, as someone who whose identity was wrapped up in the more disciplined I am, um, all these things that the more loved I am by God. Um, and what's, what's with all these other lazy Christians who aren't as disciplined as I am. So I saw myself as really strong. Um, and Dave Oswald comes along and, and shows me to be a weak believer because I was placing more faith in my own ability rather than the finished work of Jesus and true strength and faith is to trust in the work of Jesus rather than your own work. And so what I thought was strength was actually weakness. It was weak faith. It was faith in myself rather than in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is he's looking the, the person in the eye who's still holding on to the law and they're really disciplined and they're saying, I don't eat meat because I'm, you know, in the law, I would never eat meat. And, um, and maybe are still practicing some of the, the uh, laws that Sean just mentioned as if to say, I'm a better follower of Jesus because I'm holding on to these areas and I'm really disciplined. And Paul kind of publicly shames them <laughs> and calls them weak, um, while the strong he calls those who are placing all of their faith in Christ and saying, I, I feel a complete freedom because of Christ um, that I don't have to hold on to these laws. Um, does that make sense? Sean, anything you would add or, or clarify there? <clears throat> no, that was, uh, that was well said, actually. Yeah, I, I think, once again, notice in scripture how many times things are turned upside down um, and, and what that does to our ego, right? So now the, the weak and the strong are sitting in the room together hearing this read for the first time when this letter is delivered. You can just, I imagine, feel the tension in the room as maybe the religious kind of Pharisee type person like me hears that read, they're, they're thinking, wait a second, Paul, I'm the strong one, but you're calling me weak. Uh, that'll, that'll poke at your pride and your ego a little bit and make you examine where your faith is. But he's not going to leave the quote unquote strong person off the hook either. As we move through the chapter, he, he's, he's going to look both the weak and the strong in the eye and, and show how we can both be wrong in how we exercise our freedoms. Um, let's look at verse three in, in light of that. Uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So the one who is strong, right? Who, who has the freedom, who's fully convinced in their conscience that they can eat the meat. They don't have to practice these laws anymore. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Don't let them despise the one who chooses not to eat the meat um, and let the one who abstains. So the one who doesn't eat the meat or um, who is still holding on to some laws, don't let them pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So where do you see Paul going with this thinking now in, in verse three and four? What, what do you guys see? I think primarily 
uh, or initially I should say, is that we need to recognize that the, the Lord is the Lord over those strong and the weak. And um, we should not pass judgment on, on either for it's his work in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, to trust God is the ultimate judge in this situation. I don't have to be the judge, right? It frees me up from feeling the need to control other people. I can simply love them and trust that, that God will be the ultimate judge. Um, but I want to be careful there. This is a little bit of a side tangent, but it's a it's a pet peeve soapbox for me. And, and Sean, I think maybe for you as well. Um, let's talk about judgment for, <laughs> for a few minutes here. What, what is the believer's responsibility to trust God as the ultimate judge, but also speak into one another's lives um, in truth and love? Um, Sean, maybe help me out. Maybe a better way of asking that question, but you, do you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I'd have to think through that question a little bit. I think, I think what maybe I would phrase it as, as how do we, how do we lovingly correct and edify one another without seeming to be, um, without seeming to be judgmental based upon our own standards. Mm, mm-hmm. Because I think that's the key yeah. to the judgment is, I think scripture makes it pretty clear that we're to edify one another in all things, um, but not on our own standard, on the standard of scripture. But here it's, it's interesting. Paul's not talking necessarily about the standard of scripture. He's talking about a standard of conscience. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I, I think that Paul's saying that the freedom um, that caught in, in, in instances or, yeah, in instances of conscience where there is no necessarily biblical clarity, we have to find unity and give each other grace. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this isn't a spot where, okay, we're, we're evaluating ourselves in light of the stand. I like how you said that the standard of scripture, because scripture isn't necessarily going to solve, isn't going to correct you and tell you you're wrong here or you're right here. This is a matter of the conscience of conscience. So how do we still use scripture as the basis, right? As the authority, um, but ultimately leave the, the ultimate judgment up to God. But how do we find unity when our, um, consciences are different here yeah yeah mm-hmm. what are some of the um current conflicts uh, beliefs that we we hold that we have to deal with today you know i'm thinking of the king james only is comes to the first thing to my mind you know mm-hmm. um you know what what is beating us up in the church where uh, we have these conflicts I think one of the big ones for me that I've seen a lot of turmoil between believers on is, is the consumption of alcohol. And, and I'm not looking to just, I'm not looking to have that conversation. I'm just saying that this is one of the things that I see is, is, um, you know, a, an issue of the conscience for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What about spiritual um, positions? I mean, are, you know, the, we're talking about, 
outside things like alcohol, but is there something or are there things that um, are conscious within our spiritual walk or spiritual belief that we have tension over that we, we need to put away that tension? Ron, I think you're muted. There you go. <laughs> I think the issue it comes across we, we we discussed a couple of weeks ago was the the issue of uh, eternal security. I mean, the bottom line is if you are living your life to the way Christ wants you to, you you won't have to worry about eternal security. Whether you're once saved, always saved, but we get bunched up over it, and I understand that because it's a theological difference. But I think that, again, if we are living the way that we were, that Christ has asked us and instructed us to live, we wouldn't have an issue. But I think it's a, it's easy thing to get. One of those things John was just talking about, one of those spiritual issues within, within inside of our, our own mm-hmm. outside influence. Mm-hmm. We don't have these battles with food in American church. Uh, we have the, the, the positional, you know, I, I take this stand, you take that stand. And it, that's, this is causes the division. Uh, you know, here in America, we're pretty much all meat eaters. So nobody cares if you're a vegetarian, good for you, you know, within the church. But uh, we still have these um, positions that can cause tension that, we consider one, you know, I will consider myself strong in that, say, for instance, I believe once saved, always saved, but you're weaker because you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things I think that we have to translate into our, our, our modern, quote unquote, modern living. Um, that, uh, you know. How do you, how do you distinguish the, and I'm just asking this question because, um, hearing you guys process this, it made me think of it. How do you distinguish the difference between, hey, this is a scripture, maybe going back to Sean's paradigm, the difference between scripture and conscience. This is a scripture issue that we see differently, or this is a conscience issue that we see differently. How do we, so maybe John, to your point of the eternal security, it seems like on quote unquote, the well Madera side, we would say that's a scripture issue. Um, yet I'm hearing you say we need to treat it like a conscience issue of, um, humbling ourselves and, and not saying, well, we're better than somebody who doesn't believe in eternal security of believer, uh, cause that's where their conscience is at. Um, how do, how do we distinguish what's scripture conviction and what's conscience conviction? <laughs> That's a tough one. I mean, I've really been wrestling through that this past couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, um, it, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it goes, it, it's so, so deep. I mean, it's, it goes to where, you know, I, when I grew up, you, you didn't wear a hat, you know, in the, in the church, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, the, the church itself was the house of God. You know, you had to act one way or the other, or you, uh, I heard a, an example here recently of a pastor who said, you know, if you're not here on 
uh, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and involved in the water, you're in sin. Uh, said that straight out. And so these are tough things to, how do you as, as a believer say, my conscience says based upon uh, faith or based upon the word of God says, I don't have to be there Wednesday night. I'm, I'm not in sin. Mm-hmm. So we put a lot of these um, yokes on people mm-hmm. and we call them, you know, scriptural when they're basically a preference. Mm-hmm. They're not, a, you know, so yeah, I don't want to, you know, derail the discussion, but I, this meat versus vegetable things, you know, is, is not a, not a tension that we have in the, the typically the church, mm-hmm. but we have a lot of other baggage that we um, we don't um, as come at it as as strong as Paul does. Um, so, so David, I think your question's a tough one um, about how do we differentiate conscience from from uh, scriptural authority? Because as silly as it sounds, even some scriptural authority, the clarity is. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the clarity is, is a matter of perspective, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you have, for instance, the eternal security. If you view scripture from the perspective of this, eternal security makes perfect sense. If you view scripture from this other perspective, then eternal security cannot be true, and it must be um, uh, and the, the ability for a man to walk away is is um, is is possible. And so, uh, the, I don't think your question can be answered. Yeah. I think that's kind of the cool thing about faith, right? Yeah, I think one of the things we're getting at is is our our uh, our heart. And our mind that, in other words, if we if we become proud on these issues, you know, which which are important, no doubt. We send, you know, if I believe that I'm eternally secure, my brother doesn't. My mind and my heart is is becomes proud. Mm-hmm. I know more than this person. I'm more mature in the faith. And so I think that's the thing that we need to be a care, we need to be aware of, and be careful of, and I've seen it in my own life. Um, you know, well, they're, they're just not as, you know, uh, seasoned as I am in the Christian walk, and they'll come, they'll come around. Mm-hmm. You know, when when they wake up, the sleepers. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder if maybe on some of these issues where we'd say, hey, we land differently than a brother or a sister. And I believe, man, that's a scripture issue. It's not a conscience issue. But do I love my brother and sister enough to give them the credit that they earnestly seek the Lord? They earnestly read their scriptures. They earnestly say, Holy Spirit, I want to know your truth. Teach me. Do I give them that benefit of the doubt? that they're not wrong in my eyes because they want to be wrong. They, they are earnestly pursuing Jesus um, and they see it differently. 
And uh, I can love them and respect. I think it's a respect issue, right, John, to your point of not a condescending pride of like, well, they'll come around or they'll wake up. It's a, do I see my brother and sister? Um, what, what kind of grace, patience, love would I have appreciated towards me when somebody thought I was off in my theology, but they allowed me to grow, right? And so, yeah, it just, it's got me thinking uh, the way you laid that out, Sean, scripture and conscience and what that means on, you know, um, open-handed issues, close-handed issues. Um, maybe to wrap up this morning and, and kind of gear us up for next week, John already went there, which I'm thankful for. And, and I'll, I'll let you close it out here in a second. Um, two questions maybe we can be thinking through for our homework between now and next week. My first question, um, well, first, let me make this statement. The rest of the chapter, um, Paul is going to look the, the weak brother and sister in the eye and then the strong and, and address each of them for the rest of chapter 14. Maybe the first question I have for us is how did Jesus, while here on earth, demonstrate his love for others over personal preference or freedom? So, so how can we look to the example of Jesus? Uh, and how he put love for others over his own freedoms. So that's my first question. Maybe if we could come with some examples on that. Uh, the second is what John has already asked. What are some modern day examples? Because meat isn't typically the issue for us. Uh, practicing Sabbath or not is not typically the issue for us. Um, but we do have uh, issues. They just look a little different. And so... Um, yeah, two questions. How did Jesus demonstrate his uh, love for others over personal freedom or preference? And then, um, hold on. And then secondly, what are some modern day examples of these same tensions we have within our own church or churches? All right, Ann, you can bring us home. Okay. Um, Sorry, Ann, I got, I got to run. My apologies. Right. See you, Sean. Okay, I was just reading um, Romans 4, 14. Three ties up with um, Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Mm -hmm. so I think that's ties in with 14.3. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Anne. That's a good one to wrap up on. I think, uh, Anne, we need to return to that one next week when we wrap up 14 as well. <laughs> and hold that one dearly, right? Yeah, yes. hold that one close. So thank you, Anne. Uh, let me pray for us and, and we'll call it a morning. Jesus, we thank you for um, just all the ways that you gave up all your rights, freedoms, preferences, comfort. You uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but you made yourself nothing, uh, coming in human form, even like a servant. Um, to even becoming obedient to death, death on a cross for us. And so, 
Jesus, um, it is a small thing for us to give up preferences and our opinions and our freedoms out of love for others. It doesn't feel like a small thing, but in comparison to how you have done that for us, uh, we want to be men and women who love our brothers and sisters and put their needs above our own. And so humble us, um, help us to, to enjoy the freedoms we have in you while being aware of our brothers and sisters and how to edify and encourage and build up and humble ourselves and serve to kneel down and wash the feet of um, the, the people that, that you have given your life for. So Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you that, that we are free because of in many ways, how many freedoms you gave up. And uh, we thank you for how we're loved and forgiven in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Grateful for y'all. Um, and uh, we'll pick up in verse five uh, next Thursday. Okay. Have a good day, everyone. Bye.